You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Back by popular demand, his as well as yours, is Mark Logan, IOD Director of the Year, former Skyscanner COO, Startup Advisor and NXD. So welcome back to my living room, Mark. Thank you, Vicky. And I'm sorry about the strange green sofa cover, which doesn't match, but the nice black and white one is in the wash, <laughs> which is an amazing thing. Like, IKEA has made washable sofa covers, which is a truly good thing. And I'm grateful for it. It's been about 16 episodes since we first sat here, Mark. And we've both been out meeting and mentoring loads of founders and loads of companies. So I'd love to know what you've seen and, and what you've learned in that time, because it must have been quite a different experience for you being out there and meeting tons of people in this context. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think that the first thing I've learned is there's a, there's a, a very large amount of startup activity, which is great. You know, if you think about it, people say, uh, when's the next Skyscanner coming? Well, the next Skyscanner depends on a large amount of startup activity because it's a funnel issue. And it's great to see so many very engaged entrepreneurs and teams trying to do something similar. So that's that's been really good. For me, it's been interesting from an organisational perspective to see the same patterns of problems that I've struggled with in my career. And you can only ever work at one company at a time, by and large. And you're never sure if this is your problem only or if it's a general problem. But to see those replicated in many places is is quite reassuring rather than a negative because it means that the same solutions will work for everybody. So I, I've found that that very interesting. I think on the on the downside of that, um, it, it, it's it is striking how many startups, uh, not the ones that I work with necessarily, but just generally as you walk through this, this space, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, are in the process of failing slowly and don't know it. You know, I, I liken it to, you know, if you go to have a picnic in a forest somewhere and you, the family's, you know, having their cake and enjoying the sunshine and the lovely trees, you're unaware that the trees are out there trying to kill each other. Yeah. Um, but they do <laughs> it so slowly, you know, they're, yeah. they're stri- striving to get more light than other ones around them. You can't see this because it happens at a, a speed below our, our kind of consciousness. We're not very good at long-term yeah. things. And, uh, Start, a startup that's failing doesn't fail at a speed that you can detect when you're in it, but nevertheless is failing. And it comes back to some fundamentals I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about as we, as we go through this, this podcast. So that's been quite alarming. And I think if there's one thing I could urge every startup to do is don't, and we've talked about this before, but don't replace a, a rigorous analysis of your business performance with activity. Activity is a drug, you know, if I do activity, I must be doing something good. Being busy is not necessarily being right, but that's the the mistake a lot of startups are making. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to that in this because I think the whole concept of an MVP has got a lot to answer for because it's a busy thing to be doing. Yeah, I've been out, I mean, we've crossed paths and and overlapped some of the companies as as we've been out. I've I've seen loads of activity, which is is really inspiring. And, And like you, I've found some... Some common themes. I think it is a it is a funnel issue. I was just saying to you before I press record. I'm working with about five right now, working quite closely with them, and they're all excellent. 
in their various ways. Um, but I have seen a lot <laughs> to get to the point that there's five that I really am able to invest a fair bit of time and energy into. And some of them you don't need to invest that much. You can, you can literally share the one piece of wisdom that you have that's relevant to them and, and move on and they gain. But the failing slowly is, is interesting because it's not even restricted to quite early stage companies. I mean, I, I've seen one or two who've got quite a bit of money behind them caught perhaps in a, a loop that their funding is, is perpetuating. I don't think there's any shame in embracing the startup as a temporary thing and when you have validated the idea out of existence, accepting that as a perfectly successful outcome mm. and moving on to the next one. Which brings us to the next question and it's actually from a startup employee but it really resonated with me. They submitted it through the form. You can submit your question through this form. You'll find it at vickybrock.com slash podcast. And they write, I've worked in a number of startups and here's something I'm interested in exploring. In a lot of cases, the founder is A, the smartest person in the room and B, often quite capricious in their focus. Now, I get that in some cases that's going to be inevitable. You have to hunt for product market fit and you need to pivot quickly. But it often feels to the wider team that they are, that they are left dealing with the fallout of sudden changes in focus and it also leads to worry that there is really no focus at all. Do you have any insights on whether this is really a thing? And if so, how should it be managed? It's really hard to meet your targets and deliver on plans when they keep changing. <laughs> uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, is this nimbleness and flexibility or is it uh, something more problematic, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very good question and it's a chronic issue, I think, across many, many companies of, of, of many sizes. So let's try and unpack this, this a little bit because a business which is operating rigorously to a lean startup style model of learning metrics and pivoting when needs to make to pivot will, you know, from time to time decide that priorities need to be changed. Another example of a legitimate change is where, for example, a new technology wave arrives and causes you to have to respond to it. So Mobile was a great recent example of that. I think machine learning is going to be another one. And uh, none of us like to have to change our operational plans or our development plans, but sometimes there are very legitimate reasons for it. And the questioner here isn't talking about those cases, but it's important before we dive into their question that we don't sort of suggest that all such changes of direction suddenly or otherwise are negative because often they're necessary for survival. There's these all the it's the five forces, isn't it? The, mm. All the externalities from regulatory to competition to kind of changes in context, and, and those things are things that you have to respond Absolutely. to or you'll die. Yes, or sometimes you just have to realise that you know what we've got more information now and we we were wrong uh, or hadn't thought about this clearly enough, so now it's time to incorporate that new information. These are all very legitimate cases, and you know if somebody found that too much to deal with and they shouldn't be in the startup or tech fast moving fast growing world now let's take that set of legitimate cases and put them to the side and expose the questioner's case of all things being equal i have a you know the word was just capricious uh, founder ceo whichever that, that regularly changes priorities now this is a, a very very common problem and if you think about the the gearing on this it's 
always easier to think of ideas than it is to implement them. <laughs> and that's the foundation of the issue. Um, the, related to that foundation is the fact that you know, a founder will start off as one or two people. And if they want to think of an idea, think of this as a, a flow, a pipeline, the, the rate of idea production is gated by the rate of idea implementation because they are implementing the damn yep. stuff. So they naturally gate their own idea creation. But once you separate the founder from implementation, then the, the founder feels is no longer constrained by the bottleneck of implementation <laughs> and gets free to generate ideas very quickly. At the same time as the company starts to take shape, the founder has new pressures upon him or her from the board, investors, who haven't lived in the practitioner's world and expect progress you know, quickly. So that creates a double effect of the founder feeling that they need to do more there. And the other thing that happens to, to founders quite often is you always go through this identity crisis of what's my value to this business? Um, I'm no longer writing the code, for example, that happens with a software business. Um, therefore, what, what's my value? My value is I come up with visionary ideas, so I'm going to do more of that. <laughs> yeah. You can see how people get to this, this, this phase, but the root mechanical issue is that you've decoupled the founder from the constraint of implementation, so they're free to locally optimise, and that means generate lots of ideas. And it's, it's a, one of these uh, vicious circles because when founders or CEOs demand attention, they get that attention from the very people who would otherwise be implementing the last set of priorities. So the bottleneck is implementation and the very act of creating more ideas makes that bottleneck even narrower because we're taking time away to write up papers or create slides or scope stuff you're never going to implement. I mean, it's a chronic and acute yeah. problem in so many businesses. Um, now, I'm stating something that I think a lot of people will recognise the question is, you know, what, what can be done about it? Now, I'm going to make the assumption here that, you know, you're in uh, a position where you can influence certain things, but you can't tell the founder to stop it. Yeah. Go the only person who's ever been able to do that is when I co-founded with my husband, who was my head of products, and he was like, <laughs> you are not coming in product meetings. No, go away. <laughs> That's a rare scenario. He's a, bra- he's a braver, braver man than I am. Um, I, 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 I found the, the only way, the only way I've found, maybe other ways, but the only way I've found to, to mitigate this issue is to reunite the founder with the, with the constraints of implementation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, and not necessarily that the founder needs to start coding, that's obviously probably not a good idea after a certain point um, for a whole bunch of obvious reasons. But you know, if you think about the, the the cycle from here's a great idea, we should do this, through to properly defining that idea, to scoping it, to kind of user focused testing it, to whatever the steps you may have, it's really important to try and insert the originator of those ideas in this particular scenario into some part of that process because it's naturally gating. Example, um, that's a really great idea about starting this you know, new product line. Um, we're going to need you as the originator of this idea to be part of the team that builds out the analysis of it. Um, that's going to need some of your time, but the team's going to need that because, and I don't, I'm not saying this you know, in a kind of uh, patronising sense, that's often the case, that you do need that, yep. that insight. But 
if you make the mistake of saying, thanks for that idea, we'll run with this, then what you're doing is you've just freed up the founder to have another idea. Yep. That founder has to have inertia by being part of the expansion of that idea. And that tends to get things a little a little better. And that's really interesting because I, you know, I've seen it happen where I've done it accidentally. Because I, as I've said many times, I have like dozens of ideas a day. Well, before breakfast, I have dozens of ideas and some will stick in my brain. And at the moment I've got a new idea, it is the best idea ever. Like without question, it is better than every idea I've ever had before for that brief moment. And when I'm in a mode like this, I go away, I get my Bill Owlett's 24 steps of disciplined entrepreneurship and by lunchtime it's like a rubbish idea and I'm on to the next one. Or it's actually validated through and it sticks. So I've actually, as you're talking about dating, I've got that bit where... Now, there's only a, a maximum level of throughput I can have because if, if it's gotten me obsessed enough to care about and I'm now working on my steps to see if it deserves to live. But I've been in meetings just having ideas like I have conversation, not really understanding that as the CEO or as the founder, people take you seriously, listen to that and do what you said, whether it was a stupid idea or not. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize I needed to build a structure. And partly it took my husband, who was confident enough to go, You've done it again. And I used to get a WhatsApp message going, Undo what you just did, <laughs> which is a very rare, a very rare scenario that you can mm-hmm. have that. But, you know, I actually started to get quite deliberate of building in a validation process. Is there, you know, is there a business case here? What's going to come off the list in order to make something else go onto the list? Largely to manage my own disruption of the company. But I can, I can really see that if the founder hasn't got anywhere else where that's stopping them, and it must make them feel, I mean, I know it used to make me feel better and valued and useful, but I just had another great idea, like, yeah, you know, I have a purpose here, another great idea. Is it something that you can manage up? I mean, it's in the, I suppose if the culture's right, you can kind of call it out and joke about it. And if the culture's wrong, it, it can become quite tyrannical. Yes, it, it can be very difficult. I think it's, it's useful to separate tactical from strategic solutions. So what I've just described in terms of, you know, gating the flow by including the originator of ideas in the implementation stage, that's a tactic. Um, there's other tactics. I mean, tactics aren't necessarily negative things. So another tactic is all ideas need to go through a simple spreadsheet exercise of give it a score from one to five on impact, difficulty, you know, strategic yeah. relevance. I so love on. that and used to do that all of the time because it's it's just a really easy, dispassionate way to no. Yeah, because it remo- it removes the idea from being your creation yeah. to being a thing with five attributes and you're talking these attributes. So it's a very good way of 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 um de deprogramming some of the stresses and tensions that you see in prioritization meetings, for example. Yeah. So that can be useful in this case as well. But, you know, these are all tactics. If if we go back to the problem you described, or the the question you described of, in this case, the founder is generating ideas too quickly, let's then go up a level and say, what's the actual problem here? You know, the the kind of root problem. And that then gives us the strategic issue. The root problem is that the founder is exhibiting scale-out already. You know, we, we, we find it difficult to scale companies. We find it difficult to scale ourselves. The thing that's hardest or the hardest 
scaling task is for the founder. Because, you know, at stage one, you, you had to come up with ideas and implement them. Um, it's very easy to, to forget to change. So you're still you're no longer implementing, but you're still generating yeah. ideas. That, that's a problem. You know, you need to gate your ideas to the organisation's ability to respond to them. Over time, you know, founders get that eventually, if they're, if they're getting somewhere. But they still struggle, for example, quite often to maintain consistency of message. So it's the same idea, but I'm playing now with how I describe the idea. Oh, yeah, it evolves in your head. And, mm. it, you know, it gone from this simple little thing to this whole technical vision in your head and actually catching up with the communication of that. Yeah, or, you know, the metaphor, you're refining it all the time because you sleep it, dream it, you know, all that stuff. But um, even that, and, uh, if you've got a better version of your narrative, you've got to discipline yourself to not now release it to the organisation until a, a well-defined point. Because what you're creating all the time you communicate with your team is a level of entropy. So if you think about the company scaling and the founder scaling within it, you've got these self-awareness phases of when do I need to stop doing this or do less of this? It's still a valuable thing to do. Ideas, super important. Ideas from the visionary in the business, extremely valuable. Um, Improving the metaphor for how the strategy is communicated, really important. But the, the, the thing you're having to throttle as organisation grows is frequency. You can only have one major strategic alteration per year after a certain size. And a founder who doesn't you know, strategically throttle that stuff is exhibiting scale-out. Um, so I think that you know, in an ideal relationship between a founder and other senior people, a priori, before all this becomes an issue, you want to have said, you know, as we go through these scale points... We're going to have to change our behaviours like yep. this. And so that when that happens, you can say, you know, hey, Bob, or hey, Sue, you're you know, you're, you're doing that thing you said you weren't going to do. Now, in the real world, uh, that's kind of difficult. You know, as, uh, as anyone who's tried to be you know, Donald Trump's chief of staff, <laughs> it's very difficult to retrofit these, these yeah. things. Um, so you have to use tactics, such as the ones I described earlier. Now, I don't mean when I say this to sound the, 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 a note of patronising our founders um, but rather the founder's got a responsibility to be aware of when he or she needs to adjust to not scale out and if you're not willing to do that, you're not aware enough to do it the people around you are going to patronise you with tactics so yep. you know, otherwise the business is going to fail Yeah, some of this is the stage of the business because product market fit and MVP are overused but they are they are issues, and they're issues that often pop up later than any first-time founder expects. They, they don't expect five years, six years, seven years in that their product isn't perfectly dovetailed to mm. their market in quite the way that they thought. Although, interesting, I mean, Tom talked about this in, in episode 16, and, and, uh, and, and I also talked about it with Leah Hutchin, is it's generally not the product part of product market fit that that's the problem. <laughs> It's the, are you at the right market, going at the right way, understanding your buying unit, pricing it? You know, it's, it's, it's often, and especially in late stage business, that part of it that you haven't got right, not, hmm. not the product piece. But there is, if you are following you know, your, your, your lean startup or your disciplined entrepreneurship and you're, you're kind of going through this systematic iteration process, there is a time and a place for that. And that's fun and it's busy. And, and for the the founding team, especially the founder CEO, that's what they're really good at. That's why they're there. But 
But there then comes a point in the business where it's get on and execute and get something to market and and being sold. And you, you've, you've got people who are being measured on that outcome being achieved. And then you've got a type of founder or a, as you say, a, a level of scale of founder and has the founder not scaled up with it, who's actually holding right back on that. I've seen it. Um, I've, I personally tried very hard to, to make sure I wasn't that kind of person because I know how prone to ideering and how much I enjoy it I would be if left to my own natural devices. But um, Dennis Mortensen, five-time founder, he gave me great advice when I started my last company and um, I interviewed him quite recently. He talks about hyper-focus and he talks about how he, especially in the early phases, drives his company on a single metric. So his current one is an AI tool that schedules meetings and they have a great single metric on plasma screens right across the office, which is how many meetings have been scheduled today. And that is the one thing that they're all working towards. And he doesn't make a big deal about recurring revenue. He doesn't make a big deal about how much money is left in the bank. It's like all about this. And he does that to hyper-focus every one of his team members on the right thing. And I wonder if a flip side of what the person's asking in this question or, or pointing out in this question <coughs> is that sometimes the actual business level focus, the what are we doing, why are we doing it, and how do we know if we're doing it right, is, is missing. <laughs> yes, because sometimes this thrashing about for new ideas is an implicit awareness, and sometimes the founder has that awareness first, that the market doesn't want your product. Um, so it's often a sign of we haven't got product market fit. Now, it'd be useful to like, let's go back over some of the things you you, you covered there Vicky because the, the more I, I work with companies and talk to people who are doing the same thing and the more experience I've gained in life the more I realize that this product market fit thing falls right into the category of a little knowledge is a dangerous thing so let's let's unpack that a little bit so um first of all the, the lean startup is a bit like Moby Dick or Ulysses which is to say um, everyone's got a copy, but very few of them have read it. So a lot of people are using MVP and so on, but haven't actually read the book. And it's, it's surprising how, how many people that applies to. It's a big issue. So we, we set off with the superficialities of, of the lean startup approach without the actual understanding of them. So, you know, I'd urge everybody to fix that. Now, read the bit about metrics. Because, like, the MVP... Especially, especially the bit about metrics. with metrics. Has it worked? It's a hypothesis, it's a test, mm. not a throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Absolutely. And I think the second issue with the lean startup or the product market fit concept is that the product market fit concept is necessary but not sufficient. And you touched on this a few moments ago. You know, to have a business, you've got to think about four things. You've got to think about product market, but also business model and channels to that market. So for example, if you want to have a you know, £100 million annual revenue business, you can have 100 million customers at a pound a year or, you know, 10,000 customers at £10,000 a year, both add up to the same annual revenue. But if your market doesn't support those numbers, then you haven't got the business you thought you had. Or if the revenue you're getting from your customers doesn't support your channels to that market, you haven't got the business either. So there's other ways we could analyse that that set of four things. But you know, we need to think about all four of them in play and we tend not to. We tend to say we're going to build a product and then make sure it fits the market. But 
your markets don't fit your yeah. product, it's the other way around. Channels don't fit your product, you build products for channels. And we don't tend to have that uh, you know, growth science-based awareness when we talk about product market fit. But I think what, more fundamentally, I mean, every, almost everybody I've met in my time has been smart people, well-intentioned. People don't set out to screw up these things. So why is it that most companies struggle with the, the topic we're talking about here? And I think it's because the, the fundamental thing that tells you you've got product market fit operates at a frequency much longer than our business environment's willing to tolerate. So for example, we love to talk about customer acquisition because it happens every day. Yep. Um, we love to talk about revenue because it goes up or not every, every month. But the, the way you know you've got product market fit is because you've got retained users. So the number of users using this product 10 time periods from when they first used it is sufficiently high to maintain a business. Now, the vast majority of businesses don't have the numbers to see that um, and don't break them down very well. So you were talking about the, the case where the business in question is one metric, which is about number of meetings booked. That's a very good start, in my view, because it's not about revenue, it's about usage. But let's now break that down. Let's say that every month you sign up 100 users. You want to have a graph for each of those 100 user cohorts as to how they decline over time and map that back to what you're actually doing in your product. And most businesses don't do that kind yeah. of stuff. So that's why we can have this issue of activity. You know, we're doing stuff, we're writing software. It might even be very, very focused on the software. Maybe the CEO or founder isn't generating lots of ideas and it can feel like we're getting somewhere but we're not really paying attention to retention. I mean, the metaphor I'd use is, is imagine, you know, it's a, it's, it's a hot sunny day, but even as the sun moves past noon and is going down, the day's still getting hotter. Yep. But the sun's going down. So very often in business, it feels like things are heating up, but the sun is setting on your business. And it's really difficult, especially like if, you're, if you're in enterprise or something with a slow sales cycle. I mean, somebody confidently told me the other week that they had got a 100% retention rate. And I was like, oh, what's your contract cycle? And they're like, well, hmm. at 12 to 24 months, well, <clears> nothing's <throat> up for renewal yet. No. So you do not have a 100% retention <laughs> rate. It's just you haven't had a churn point yet. And what your indicator is looking like, what's your prediction on what your churn's going to hmm. be? Because, boy, is that going to be painful. I mean, I know that. I've, I've done multiple businesses in that type of field where, yeah, it looks fine for a while. You, you, you're focused on getting people up on board. And then when the first set of renewals come up, they drop off a cliff. And, mm-hmm. and the people that haven't been answering the phone who you've struggled to get feedback from are the exact people who churn because they haven't been seeing the value and so little value have they been seeing that they can't be really be bothered to have a conversation with you to tell you how little value that they're seeing from it. Um, so all of that stuff, it's, you know, the churn is a lagging indicator of a problem that was set in place nine yes. months ago. That's a great example of using the wrong metric to monitor retention. A better way to think about retention is retention is a function of engagement. So that scenario you just talked about You'd have probably seen retentions 100%, but engagement zero. So, you know, because I'm not using the product, but I'm still going to pay the bill till, yeah. the, till the thing runs out, the contract runs out. So, I think you've got to be saying the, the, the one metric, if it's one, I think that's, that's a good goal, needs to be somewhat keyed off engagement levels. And, uh, you know, it needs, to, it needs to match the natural frequency of usage. So, if, if you're supposed to use this thing every week and you're not using it every yeah. week, 
the and the contract might be every year, but you know you're you're filling yourself. So I think most most of us get that wrong most of the time. I know I have, yes. um, and uh, I wish I'd, I'd I'd known that earlier, and I would have probably operated differently. But I think that's why many businesses have activity without eventual success because of this very issue. And things like the founder going on an information overdrive sometimes might just be because, as I said earlier, the founder hasn't scaled him or herself. But sometimes it's because there's a, a, a non-verbalised realisation that we ain't got engagement. Yeah. What we're going to do to get it. Um, so a great example of looking at symptoms and trying to trace it back to, to, to root causes. And I think that as a founder, you have to be honest with yourself and go, this happens. In fact, you know, what was it like four out of five startups fail? So for at least four out of five startups, this happens. This is normal. Even for the one that succeeds, they probably went through this multiple times. So this is a normal state of affairs. Don't panic. Don't scare the crap out of your people. You now need to go into a process and actually handle this in a quite structured way of of informed but rapid learning and, and it's doable and I, I I dedicated about six weeks to that and it actually worked very very well um, and the idea that we came out with that we felt had been validated by both the customer and our internal capabilities to deliver we did score out on a spreadsheet and it was one of the least sexy ideas of 25 on a page but actually it scored higher than anything else on our ability to do it, the customer's ability to implement it, the simplicity of the buying unit, the lack of competition in, in the space, the lack of complexity to integrate, all of this kind of thing. It's like, okay, right, this is a thing worth doing a valid experiment on and we know how we're going to measure it if it worked. That was like a really systematic way of doing it. Whereas the kind of shoot the messenger approach which I have seen happen and I've you know earlier on in my career definitely been at the receiving end of that of the you happen to be the person dealing with the client and the client has happens to have some bad news you, you know you don't kick the account manager mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you kind of try to learn mm-hmm. learn through that but that is I suspect a a fear reaction in some ways which mm-hmm. is like literally yes. don't don't tell me something that is telling me that my startup isn't going to work. Yes, but don't challenge the version of reality I've created. Now, Andy Grove, you're the former CEO of Intel and regarded by many as maybe the top executive that, that Silicon Valley's ever produced, he, he was fond of saying that you have to encourage Cassandras in your business and not people named Cassandra yeah. necessarily. Cassandra effect. Yes, the, the, the forewarning of problems. And uh, he would stay very close, in particular, to his frontline sales team. Um, and I think that you know the, the quote I always like um, uh, that illustrates this is, is, is from Moby Dick, funnily enough. And it's a, it's about how the captain's at the the back of the ship, and it's the sailors at the front that smell the wind changing first. Uh-huh. And uh, you've got to set up your business and your culture so that that information gets to the captain. And uh, we often do the opposite. We often just people feel reluctant to share bad news and. Bad news gets diluted as it moves upwards and, and so on and so forth. You know, it's interesting in China, people talk about the, t- the terrible Great Leap Forward and how so many millions of people died. It was an absolute tra- tragedy. Um, I was surprised to learn it wasn't so much that Chairman Mao uh, knew that was happening because 
the, the culture was to give the chairman good news. So every report that said the crops are failing got slightly adjusted as it went through 20 levels of bureaucracy. Right. So when it got to the most senior levels of, of the Chinese government at the time, um, the message was everything's going really well, you know, and uh, people were starving to death. Now, uh, in a less dramatic and tragic fashion, our companies often do that as well. Yeah. We tend to discourage people from sharing news which ad- uh, upsets the convenience of the reality that we've created for ourselves. They forewarned us forearmed, so if uh, we know all these things are going to be risks, if we know that retention is the game, that engagement is the way of noting retention, that one metric's important, etc., then we can build our governance to enshrine those things. I, I find it in practice very, very difficult to retrofit learning metrics uh, or leap of faith assumptions or any of that stuff into a business that's already up and running. Uh-huh. It's much, much easier to do it at the start before... Other, other behaviours and habits are set. So for using the example that you, you did earlier with the software, I mean, a way, way better measurement for that from the very beginning would have been if it was on weekly logins, it's like literally how many, how many weekly logins per customer per week or, you know, a metric is showing your number of clients and your number of logins and the number of logins per client per week because you're soon going to see that flat running mm. out and then that's not, that's not, the bla- you know, the blame is not then pointed at, oh, you know, you product manager or you account manager or you sales or you whoever. That's just out there and mm. that company's responsibility, because everybody's driving towards it, is to go, hell, this isn't working as we thought it would. What are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. Whereas when that gets hidden away, and it's the kind of, it's like the it's the half-red version or non-red version of Lean Startup, if you're just thinking about MVPs and that you can iterate your way out of that, you're missing the point. Because done well, those metrics are the flip side of that. That's what you're trying to prove in or prove out. Mm -hmm. Um, And having that exposed and understood is, is really critical. As a final point then, because this focus is so critical and because the founder particularly perhaps a struggling or uh, inexperienced founder is also is this the person that undermines it as well as it says it how do you think that the leadership as a team should be both saying and communicating this focus mm-hmm. i mean on both on a periodic basis but also on a on an ongoing basis mm-hmm. So uh, the way I think about this is imagine two variables here. So one is how often, uh, or, or let's say how how uh, strategic uh, is the item. So we're going from strategic to tactical. You imagine from left to right, and then how often should you communicate uh, on those items? Now these things are are essentially inversely proportional. So you should change your strategy uh, as little as possible and communicate that strategy as often as possible. And as you move out from there, the things that are more, uh, you know, frequent, such as within that strategy, we're building these three things this quarter, you should communicate about quite a lot, but not as much. And then the small details and tweaks, you you don't have to communicate at all. We tend to do it the other way around. We tend to not talk about the core strategy very much. And we tend to talk about the latest set of changes we're making a lot. And that leaves people with a, lacking an intellectual foundation to understand what the management team is trying to do. So 
lesson I learned there, I think, is, is find a way to really crisply communicate your core direction and communicate it all the time in lots of different channels, one-to-ones, company meetings, screens around the office, posters when you lift up the toilet lid. Maybe yep. not, but that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, but Google does those. Learning on the loo. Well, the, the back loo, yes. of the door Taking seat. the toilet and things yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> never be quite sure about the hygiene of that one. But uh, <laughs> but, um, it, but the point is, you know, you've got to really communicate that a lot because if you get that right, all the micro decisions people make every day where you're not there will be grounded in, in the context of your strategy. Now, the other side of this is that means you don't change your strategy very often. You change it if you have to pivot, but that's shouldn't be yeah. very often. It's fine when you're a very, very early startup and you're trying to find your way. When you start to get to, you know, more sort of traction, product market fit, starting to materialise, you've got to be careful that changes to strategy ripple in eternity. Yep. And people get confused and have to have meetings and understand it and you're, you're reducing their ability to get stuff done. So that's kind of how I think about it. And founders or CEOs or leaders tend to under-communicate the stuff that doesn't change very often because they assume everybody knows it. Yep. But they almost certainly don't unless you're reminding them all the time. Um, I was always very struck in Cisco at its height. And every time the CEO spoke, he repeated the four-point plan. Mm-hmm. He found ways to just get it in there as he was saying hello to someone, just incessantly to the point where it hurt, but we all knew the four-point yep. plan. I think that's a good a good model. And I think that's really important because one of those articles I read quite often is Have You Got a Strategy? And I also love a book called Hope Is Not a Strategy. But actually, we forget about the strategy. It get, like, a product roadmap is not a strategy. An operational plan is not a strategy. A release schedule is not a strategy. A, a marketing communication plan is not a strategy. Those are executional things. Mm. And when all the focus and all the communication is going there, and they are also the dynamic things. They are the things that are most likely to shift around. Mm-hmm. And I suspect as, you know, as, as we wrap up, probably what the person asking this question is talking about is constant shift in this strategy. part of stuff and probably literally no communication around the strategy mm-hmm. because if the strategy is changing anywhere near as much as as they're implying then it's, it's quite hard to know what on earth the company mm-hmm. is doing or existing for yes you know it could well be that or it could be that strategy exists but it's just not been communicated because one of the mistakes that you know I think it's very easy to make as a management team is let's say you've got 300 people in your company and 10 people kind of overall manage the company. They, they tend to spend weeks in a room trying to figure out what the strategy is. And when they're doing that, they're implicitly building a intuition for that strategy. And then they go out and there's, there's elements of political compromise in that strategy. Mm-hmm. Then they go out and stand up and say to everybody, here's the strategy in a one hour presentation and expect everyone to get it, who didn't spend weeks building an intuition, you know, understanding why that branch should be pruned and so on. So you've got to to remember that, that the people you're hearing what you're saying have no context and you've got weeks of intuition, so it's now implicit. So it's very important to find a way to tell the story that assumes no starting context, but we usually get that wrong. Yeah. And then that's when you get the kickback as you brief stuff into different teams and they go, well... Why, why are we doing this? And haven't you thought of that? And surely we should do it this way? And Also a great example that the, the worst type of meetings are horizontal meetings. We're all at the same grade, let's talk. 
often the best strategies are, are informed by frontline knowledge. So whenever I had a meeting and it was all people at the same grade, I, I usually was concerned because we weren't taking in frontline wisdom. Mm. And uh, that's important. As ever, a lovely pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for stopping by my uh, sofa. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Mark Logan, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can ask your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast.